Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning again, everyone. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, Kudos to you who finished the marathon or half marathon already. Uh, I really have this passion to just run 26.2 miles, but I have to be here at church. Otherwise, I would have done it with you. Um, So thanks for doing that for me. Uh, If you just want to bow your heads with me once more before we dive into God's word. Um, Lord, we come before you and we know uh, that we do have needs. There's always a point in each and every one of our hearts, uh, and that's whether we believe in you or whether we don't, that there's a point where our ability stops and we need help from something else. So I pray today that not only would you help us in that place where we presume our ability stops, but that you would actually show us um, how all of our life, the whole of our existence is actually dependent upon you. It's dependent upon your grace and your kindness and your mercy to bring us all of the things uh, that our hearts and that our world tells us that we need. And so we pray that you uh, unite us to you through faith by your word this morning and that you would be glorified in our gathering. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. On April 26th, 1986, reactor number four of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Soviet-controlled Ukraine melted down and had the greatest nuclear disaster, one of the greatest nuclear disasters in history. And recently, my wife and I have started reading a book on the Chernobyl disaster. And what's so captivating to me is not the scope of what happened, of the explosion and the radiation that came out, but actually the extent to which people have gone through to try and stop the radiation that happened. There's an explosion that happened in a mere second, but there's this this fallout that is still ongoing in that area today. The problem was the meltdown, when the core of the reactor was exposed, it exposed and contaminated the air, the soil, the food, the machinery, the clothes, the people, the water, everything began to be contaminated by radiation. So much so that the Soviets quickly realized that not only did they have an immediate health problem, but despite treating the symptoms, they couldn't, nor did they have the capacity to actually deal with the nuclear waste that was left. They had nowhere to put it. They couldn't get rid of the source of the problem, and so it just kept compounding and compounding and compounding. Even today, 30-some years later, there are dozens of nations and billions of dollars and a large amount of human lives that have been spent trying to contain the nuclear accident that happened. So much so that there's still a 30-kilometer radius around the plant where you're not allowed to live. It's called the special zone. And after the reactor meltdown in the late 80s, they built kind of an encasement over the power plant, hoping that it would contain the radiation and trap it in the plant. And they had this wonderful idea that this would last for 100 years. It lasted for like 20 years And so it wasn't until this last year they actually built this brand new encasing unit and rolled it over the plant, and they're hoping that this unit might contain the radiation for another hundred years. But the point is that the brightest minds and the most powerful nations in the world still can't figure out how to undo what was done in an instant. The thought of fixing the implications of the Chernobyl disaster seems impossible to even the brightest scientific minds throughout the centuries. And if you've been with us as we've been working now in the sixth week in the book of Ephesians, Paul has outlined the greatest meltdown in human history. And we saw that in chapter two where he begins to describe for us the implications that sin has on our world. Far more than just being these cataclysmic events and wreckage that we could look at in terms of brokenness or disasters or war, there is an invisible threat that has poisoned everything in our life. It has poisoned our world. It has deadened our hearts. It has separated us and brought hostility between us and one another. But more importantly, it has removed us from the goodness of God himself. And as Paul is describing this bleak situation in our world he begins to talk about the unthinkable. He describes a fallout and a problem that makes Chernobyl look like child's play, but then he says, Jesus can fix it. 
Jesus can fix the unfixable. Jesus can do the impossible. In a world that has been quarantined apart from God, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 10 that at the fullness of time, it is God's good plan to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth in Jesus Christ. The impossible is really happening at the hand of God. Hearts that have been killed by the poison of sin are being made alive by Jesus Christ. Societies which once stood as hollow ghost towns, void of any sort of human compassion or human life, are being turned into what we saw last week, temples of the living God. Dwelling places for God and man to come together where hostility has been removed and there is reconciliation at all levels. And the motivating factor, the power behind all of this that we see today is the love of God. It's God's immense love for us. And the truth is, this is probably my most favorite passage in all of Scripture. It's the passage I often think about when I think about my own life, when I think about my life here at the church. And it's unique because it's also the most, one of the most humbling passages you can look at, especially through the lens of being a preacher. In this passage, the Apostle Paul himself reaches his limit. He reaches the point where he realizes that teaching and encouragement and even sometimes firm rebuke, it stops. And now he begins to describe something that only God can do. And he begins to pray. This beautiful prayer. He realizes it's only God through the Holy Spirit, by the work of Jesus, that what he's asking for can be done in our lives. Make no mistake, Paul here is outlining for you the very undoing of all of the wrong that has happened in your life. He's holding out for you the promise of being finally purified from the internal and external harm that sin has brought into this world. And he's tied it not only to the removal of that, but the promise of eternal satisfaction. But what I want you to hear before we dive into this text is that only God can give you that experience. Only God can do it. I'm going to spend a lot of words today describing the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, but there aren't enough words to convince you that God loves you. No speaker has the the coercive effect enough to bamboozle you into genuinely loving God. But Jesus can change your heart and cause you to love God. You might think that there's no way you can ever have peace or that uh, restlessness or maybe that anxiety you feel when you think about coming before God or going to church, that you'll never have peace. But Jesus can give you that peace. You might think that despite all of the hardship you've experienced in life and all the hardship you see in our world, that it is impossible to have any sort of consistent hope in this world. But Jesus can give you that hope. You might think there's no way you can overcome the sin that you've been struggling with secretly for decades or the interpersonal relationships that have marred your life. But in this text, Jesus is saying he can help you. You might think this life of salvation, this community of the church will only be what it has been and nothing more. But what this text shows is that God has, God will, and God is making something astounding out of the life of the church. And Paul prays now. It's his second prayer in three chapters. Paul prays because he realizes that he is practicing what he's been preaching in this whole book, that the whole of Christian life is about God's grace to us. We need God to do something in our hearts. And what we're going to see today is that God desires to be gracious towards each of us. God desires to actually do something in our hearts because he loves us. And this is really important, so we're going to dive into Paul's prayer today, and we're going to see three requests that Paul is praying for, and it's important because what's going to happen next week and in the remainder of the books is Paul's going to give us some really practical steps. What does it look like to live out this Christian faith? He's going to talk about what it looks like to fight sin, to pursue holiness, to live as employers and employees and husbands and wives and children and parents. He's going to give all sorts of implications, but if all we do are those implications and follow those commands that God has given us but we neglect the power of God in this prayer, we will miss the love of God. And if we understand the love of God in this text, then all of those commands, as weighty, as hard, and as difficult as they might seem to us, 
we realize they're doable because God has loved us in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at today are three requests that are inside of Paul's prayer. And this is what we're going to see. And they'll be on the screen later. And they're kind of long and wordy because I didn't have the wordsmith power to narrow them down. But this is what we have. Uh, Three requests. Request number one is that God would establish you in love. Request number two is that believers would explore the love of Christ. And request number three, that Christ and the church would display the glory of God. And so with that being said, I'm going to read this text again. I want you, as we're reading it, to see if you can see these three requests that Paul has woven into his prayer. And let's read what KJ just read for us in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, so those of you who were with us last week, Paul's resuming the prayer that he got distracted from last week. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So there are three requests in Paul's grammar inside this text, and we're going to start by looking at the first one. And his first request that we see in the first two verses is this, that God would establish you in love. That God would establish you, whoever you are, wherever you are, that God would establish you in love. What does that look like? You see, Paul knows that it's only God who has the power to do this. And he opens his prayer by alluding to families, praying to God uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives their name. Anyone who is saved by God, regardless of where you are, you belong to God's family in a unique way. You share your name is derived from God. And so in the modern West, uh, the idea of family names and family heritage probably doesn't have the weight it had. Even in America, if you decades ago, or in the rest of the world today. You see, for Paul, when he's talking about the name of your family, he's stressing so much more than what shows up on your driver's license. To have a family name or to have a crest or to have some sort of heritage with your family meant that it brought with it social advantages or social disadvantages. To have a name that was less than honorable, to have a name that was disparaged or had some sort of shame meant that you would never be on even ground with those of a noble name. If your father had a less than attractive job, you were destined to take that job. You were the son of the tanner. You were the son of the plumber. If your dad was a king, you were the son of the king. And his name defined you. A bad name brought with it shame and trial. And a good name brought with it specific privileges, rights, and new access. And what Paul is now saying here is that when you have been saved by Jesus Christ, the adoption process that Paul started talking about in Ephesians chapter one is finally complete. And now you have a new name. You have access and privileges, which regardless of what you inherited, regardless of your parents' name, you are now named in Jesus Christ. The whole world is different. There's a transformation that changes everything. You have access to God. You have privileges in a world where your name once did not have them or provide them. There is a conversion even in our name. New principles, new priorities, new privileges. And in light of this, Paul goes on to point out something which should be absolutely staggering to us. And we see this in the first four verses, or three verses, Ephesians uh, 3, 14 through 17. Uh, which I guess is four verses still, so stick with your gut. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So have you ever been in a situation where it is so obviously and abundantly clear that you need someone else to help you? 
I remember uh, after Sarah and I had our first child, we were in our old house and there was this really steep stairwell that went downstairs. Uh, it was early in the morning and I started to go down the stairs and I slipped and fell flat on my tailbone and then just clattered off the wall down to the concrete floor below. And it was this, I don't know if you've been hurt so bad, where you just feel nauseous inside of your stomach. And I'm already like a weak, like make much of nothing kind of guy. And so I'm laying there on the bottom of the concrete floor, certain I just broke my tailbone. And I just begin to cry out for help. And I realize in that moment, there are two people upstairs. But only one of them would bring me any sort of real hope. If they're at the top of the stairs was magically my one-month-old son, I probably would have been amazed, but I probably wouldn't have taken much comfort from that. And even with that, uh, my wife is who I wanted to see because she could come and she could at least check in on me and pat my head and tell me it's going to be okay. But would have been be what better, if you ask me, is not a woman recovering from childbirth. It's one of my strong, able-bodied friends to come and carry me, or a doctor to come and confirm that everything I thought was wrong was wrong, and you personally have encountered all the pain that humanity can do, and you've dealt with it masterfully. That's what I wanted in that moment. And we've all had moments in our life where because we perceive a need, we also perceive who it is we want to see come to the top of the stairs, and what it is we want them to do for us, Right? We not only say who it is we want to save us, but what that salvation will look like. And so here we have Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, a small church buffeted by culture, uh, insignificant in influence, wrestling itself with the imprisonment of Paul, their dearest friend in the faith. But now Paul begins to bring the big guns to bear on the church. All right, Ephesus, church whom I love, church who I've spent the most amount of time with. Here I am, the missionary apostle Paul, and I'm praying for you. And I am praying that God the Father, according to the riches of his glory, glory that has been unpacked in Ephesians chapter 1 to be staggering and indescribable, that that God would send his powerful Holy Spirit to strengthen you in your inner being that the work of Christ might have a compelling effect on you in the deepest core of who you are so that you might fill in the blank. Think about what the impossible situation might be in your life. And imagine the who you think would come to the top of the stairs and what it is you envision them to provide for you. What does the solution to that impossible need look like? What is the counter to your fears or your sorrows that you hope the entire work of the Trinity would come in and apply to you in your need? And then let's think about that. All of God for all of your need wouldn't we expect some sort of Samson-type power? That we could go and kill the hordes of haters in our life? That like Elijah, fire would come and consume our lousy bosses or our interpersonal needs? Or that like the 5,000 hungry souls at the feet of Jesus, that he would take what little we have and multiply it to blessed abundance? We want something miraculous. Because just like in looking at Chernobyl, we know that there are needs in our life that take a miracle to take something outside of ourselves. But did you see the miracle that Paul prayed for? Did you see what the entire power of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have set their will to do in your life, in your time of need? Look again at verses 14 through 17. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The miracle of God, the power of the Trinity for your strength 
and for your deliverance is that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. This might seem inconsequential to whatever it is you're going through. Faith is immaterial. We can't see it. The author of Hebrews tells us that. And everything else I see is real. People are really upset. People have real hurts. People have real needs. But what Paul is saying here is that there is nothing more miraculous, nothing more powerful, nothing more astounding than that anyone would have faith in Jesus Christ. That is the miracle of greatest power. And we know this because we've been reading this letter. Paul has made this clear in Ephesians chapter 2, as we talked about earlier, he defined the disaster of the soul. He says, you were dead in your sin. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath. You were enslaved to your sinful desires. There was a dividing wall of hostility, not just between you and others, but between you and God that had a real impact on your heart. And you were justly condemned for your rebellion against God. But faith, but God through your faith changes everything. Faith finally seals up the radiation that was exposed. Faith begins to undo what the impossible condition did. And the miracle of this miracle is that faith in Jesus Christ is something that only God can bring. Did you see that in this text? Did you see the subjects that are acting that Paul is praying for? It was God who would grant. It is the Holy Spirit who would strengthen. It is Christ who would dwell by faith in your heart. Now, faith is and certainly must be a decision that you make. But behind your experience is the grace of God, which enables you to hear, to repent, and to believe by faith. When we celebrate the baptism of people like Denver, we see Denver responding to what God has given in his spirit and in his word. But what Paul is doing is he's pulling back the veil all in Ephesians to show the miracle that went into that. That God gave grace. God changed hearts. God enlivened dead spirits. You see, if we want to understand salvation by faith, we need to understand first and foremost how it is that we became saved. You did, excuse me, you did not believe because you read a good book. You did not believe because you heard a good sermon at another church. You did not believe because you encountered evidence that couldn't be ignored. You did not believe because you went through a hard trial. You believed in God by faith because God desired in his loving kindness to overcome the deadness of your heart by putting his son to death for your sins and by striking your heart to life by the power of his Holy Spirit. There is nothing more marvelous than the faith that God gives to his beloved. Do you really understand that? That the greatest miracle is not that Jesus came out of the grave. That's what gods do. They do amazing things. The greatest miracle is that the God who came out of the grave enables you to have faith to believe it. And it is astounding. We believe because of what God did. And if you're not a believer in here today, I, I want you to hear this, that Jesus has undone the curse of sin and that the miracle you needed was that your sin needed to be overcome by Jesus. And if you believe, regardless of if you've believed for 20 years or if just in this moment you're finally believing what Jesus has done for you, that faith is the actual sign of God's nearness to you. It is the sign that God has not turned a deaf ear to you. It is a sign that God is not distant from you, waiting for you to do precisely what you need to do in order to respond. He has done the work for you, and we respond to his mercy. We respond to his kindness in that. He has not found you to be unworthy. Instead, by grace, he has changed your heart. And Paul says he has established you. He has rooted you in love. Why did God save us? Paul answers, he saves us because he loves us. Right, do you see what it results in? Look back at verse 17. So it's kind of difficult with Paul's grammar. 
um, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. The whole work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to redeem your heart is a work born out of God's great love for you. We saw this already in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, right? Where Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, we do not establish ourselves in the light of God's love. But God establishes us into his love. He takes us and he roots us. He takes the mountains of our flower bed and he levels it with his mercy so that he might build something phenomenal. You see, if we claim to have faith with God, we need no other assurance that God loves us because faith is not disconnected from God's love. Faith happens precisely because God loves. What a great treasure for our hearts that we, if we have faith, do not need to earn God's love by what will come, but it points us back to the way in which God has already loved us immensely and immeasurably in Christ. It is easy to love someone when it's easy. But God loved us when it was hard. He loved us when it cost him his son. He loved us when we were far from him. You see, the gospel is the good news of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul's saying. This is what joins you to God. This is God's work of establishing you inside of him, and it rolls immediately into his next request. We saw that in, the, in just the grammar of it. And so look at verses 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so in the three requests, we'll see by the time we get through it, that there's this sandwich of subjects. There's this sandwich of things that Paul is praying for. And the first prayer, Paul is praying that God would do something. In the second request, or in the third request, he is praying that God would do something. But in the middle, he is praying to those who are saved, to those who have been established in God's love, that you would do something. In other words, even Paul's prayer is stressing that salvation is 100% something that God has won for us. But our response is buried inside of what God is already doing and has already done. He wants something from us, but it's only inside of what God has already done for us. And so what is it that Paul wants those who have been saved by Jesus, who have experienced his love, to do? He wants us to understand it more. That's what he said. He wants you. He prays that you might have strength to comprehend the love of Jesus and to be filled more and more by God himself. And this is the second request of Paul the believers would explore the love of Christ. The believers would explore the love of Christ. Now, if we understand what Paul just talked about, that it's God who does the work in love, then wouldn't this just be the natural implication of that? If salvation is something because God is lovely and gracious and merciful and God himself did it and Christ himself grounded us and the Holy Spirit himself established us, then we've really stumbled onto something amazing, haven't we? Wouldn't we want to know more about this lover who has spanned heaven and earth to redeem his people? And Paul uses this spatial analogy, height, breadth, length, and depth, to, to show the expansiveness of Jesus' love for us. He wants us to know the width of Jesus' love. How far did it extend to reach you? How far will it extend to reach others around you? He wants you to know the length of it. How far does it go? Does it include the unknowns of my future? He wants you to know the height of it. How high will it take me? Where will I go? And in contrast, he wants you to know the depth of it. Will it stay with me in the dark, in the moments of my weakness, in the trials of my life? God wants you to know with confidence the love he has for you in Jesus. He wants you to really comprehend it, 
to think about it. So that we might not just have blind confidence or wishful thinking, but confidence that stems from a heart of faith, which looks and sees what Jesus did and says, there I do not need to doubt my God's love for me. For I see what he did to root me. I see what he's done to establish me. I see the mercy of love that has overwhelmed me. And so I have a question for you, and that is, what have you been learning about Jesus' love for you? What has the months, the years, the decades of following Jesus shown you about Jesus' love? And is it growing? When we think about the words and the language that Paul is using here, it's like Paul just got set in the cosmic amusement park of mercy, He's a kid trying to run to the edges, rushing to the front of the lines to experience God's love. When you think of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, do you share that kind of excitement? Do words fail you? And if not, there might be two things that Paul's asking us to consider here. And all of us at varying degrees have been inside of one of these two camps. And the first is, is that you might not be rooted in God's love. You might not have believed in the centrality of Jesus for your sins. Could it be that you see the miracle of God as something other than faith in Jesus? Could it be that you still hold on to a hope that the greatest problem you have can be solved by someone who is not Jesus? You see, the truth is you can't explore God's love if you haven't been established in God's love. But this is the beauty of salvation by grace is that we don't have to feel shameful about that because here God is inviting you to the door. He's showing you how you can be placed inside of it, and we don't have to feel guilty about it because Jesus has paid for it. And so we come in by faith, and we repent of our unbelief and our uh, distorted vision of what was actually wrong, and we say, Jesus has done it all. And now, whether you have this flooring experience of warm fuzzies in your heart or not, you know that if you believe that, you have been placed in God's mercy by God's love. And we can take hold of that with certainty. So the first thing is that maybe you're not rooted in God's love. And maybe over the course of this day or this week, you could really wrestle with God with it. Like, what is it that I actually place my hope in? And is it Jesus? Have I been rooted, not by what I've done, but by what Jesus has done for me? If you're really wrestling with that, talk to someone from your community group, talk to an elder in here today, because those are hard questions, real questions that we should wrestle with. But the second option is that maybe we haven't considered the implications of Jesus' love. Often, this is so true for me, it's often easier to think of what Jesus has done for me and neglect what Jesus has won for me. What Jesus has done for me is Jesus has died for my sins. Jesus has taken the punishment of my sins and given me his righteousness. He has won something miraculous. But Jesus has also won us to something miraculous. He has won us into a life of loving communion with Christ himself. This theme of Christ's love for the church is going to be developed by Paul over the remainder of this book in Ephesians chapter 5. So much so, he's going to say that the reason we have marriage today is because of Christ's love for the church. And so a marriage illustration is fitting here because it's precisely what Paul is thinking of as he's talking about Jesus' love for you. The moment of faith in Jesus Christ, the moment where you have that, that, that time where you see it was Jesus and Jesus alone who could deal with the greatest problem of sin, is the moment you share when you give your vows at a wedding. You are rooted and you are established. At the altar, when you say, I do, no one doubts your love. It's communicated, it's understood, it's covenantal. Just yesterday, Jesse and Ellie were married, two people from our church. And this morning, waking up, not even 24 hours into marriage, they are just as married as anyone who has been married 50 years in this body. They are established in the exact same way. They have been rooted by the exact same covenant. But if you were to ask the 50-year-old couple that's been married for 50 years to describe the love they share in marriage, it's reasonable that they would have more words. It's reasonable that they would have more clarity. Not because when they stood at the altar 50 years ago, they were any more rooted or any more established than the two that just got married. But because we see that that love has been lived out in life and they know it more certainly. 
They understand it more clearly. They have experienced it more deeply. They've lived years knowing that love through trial and hardship, through celebration and through joy. You see, there is a real temptation when it comes to those who are raised in the church to describe God's, Jesus' love for you only by pointing to the vows of the wedding day. And if that's how you describe your love for your spouse, by saying, how do you know your spouse loves you? We got married. One day she, I said I do, and she said she did, and then we got rings. It was cool. Doesn't that neglect the vast experience of marriage? Yeah, how many times when we go to describe Jesus' love for us, it just points back to what he has done, which is true. No one doubts that. But also points to the life which he has won. That you get to walk through all of life experiencing the vastness of the love that is now yours, of the name that Christ and Christ alone has given to you. And Paul makes it clear as romantic as this sounds, as natural as it may seem, he prays for strength to do it, for strength to comprehend. Ask the couple who's been married 50 years. It hasn't been a life of passivity. It hasn't been a life of simple ease. It hasn't been osmosis of showing up and having change miraculously happen in the home. It's been a life of trial, of hardship, of focus, of prayer, of dedication. It doesn't come all at once. It comes over time. And this is why Paul says with this text that this exploration is to be done with all of the saints. This shouldn't surprise us with how Paul has spoken of the church so far in the book of Ephesians. We saw last week that it takes the whole church to display the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly places. In the same way, Paul's here saying it takes the whole church with all of the saints to understand and to experience the love of Christ to the ability that we should. And this is what our membership covenant here at Sovereign Hope commits us to. When we join together, when we covenant together, we are committing to help one another experience this and to be helped by others in understanding this vast love. And it changes our community. It changes how we interact with one another because we really realize that when we come here, We are joining with people to collectively experience, communicate, and enjoy the love of Jesus. That this really involves all of us. And so when you think of your relationships in this church, is your relationship helping others understand this love? Is it providing them peace when they have no peace? Is it providing them security when they're wrestling with insecurity? Is it providing them rest when they're labored and weary? Because this is precisely what God has given the church to do. There is great love to be experienced together as we put off sin and wrestle with loss and deal with the obstacles of life in following Jesus. And here's the beauty of it that Paul's getting at. Is every time whether through triumph or trial, you think you have come up to the edge of Jesus' love for you, it proves limitless. Isn't that amazing? Limitless is Jesus' love for us. We're looking at black holes. We can't grasp the end of Jesus' love for us. And this might seem impossible to you. It might be impossible because you've been a Christian your whole life. You've sat in church, you've read your Bible, you've sang the songs, you've prayed your prayers, and it might just seem that I know God's love for me. I know he died for me. I know he loves me. It says he loves me. I can't possibly understand more. Stop telling me that I should understand more. I should experience more the love of God. Or it could be that you look at this and you say, getting excited and emotional about God's love for you and Jesus Christ is just for the newly converted, for the young 20-year-old sipping craft coffee, zealous about Jesus, but they haven't been tempered by the expectation of life. But if that's you, if you're in any of those camps, look at what Paul is holding out to you. That God himself is 
able to give you not the burden of studying God, but the joy of experiencing his love. He is able to do it. That's precisely what Paul is praying for, is that there is a point where our weak hearts stop. We run into a wall and we say, this must be it. But Paul says, push harder and see there's no limit. It is unending for all eternity. Explore, spelunk, skydive, dive deep into the sea of Jesus' love and realize it has no limits. And did you see what he says here in verses, chapter 3, verse 20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. To him who is able. There is something remarkably profound in that statement. To him who is able. We often overlook that, don't we? That our God is able. You see, in the Old Testament, when uh, God is using his prophets to rebuke God's people for chasing after idols, it's exactly ability that the prophets go after. They say, you think that in sacrificing and in worshiping these idols, that they can do something for you. But try this experiment. Knock down an idol, cut it up, put it in the fire, and cook your food on it. It cooks your food. You use it to get food, and yet you're worshiping it like it provides something to you. It is not able to save you. You are able to master it and to tame it. It is not able to save you. Think of the God of Missoula, the God who provides joy, satisfaction, and experience with the divine, the experience of nature, getting out into the mountains, floating the river, hunting, fishing. We love those things. God's given us those things to be good. But if you've ever been hurt, if you've got an injury, and you've been unable to go out and experience it, you know how unable those things are. There is, at St. Pat's, wonderful views of the mountains all around us. And as you sit with a broken leg in that hospital bed, those mountains are not able to come to you. They're not able to provide peace to you. They're not able to visit you. But God is able he is able to come to you when we are far from him. He is able to minister to us when we are unable to move towards him. He has made it his business to dwell in your hearts through faith when it feels that no one else is able. But that's not it. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. For the building fund, I have had, I don't know if it's a privilege, the challenge of going and asking brothers and sisters in Christ who are not part of this church to consider making generous and large donations to our building fund. And in that moment when I'm there, there's always this tension in my heart. And our interns for GCF, when they're raising support, they have the same trial. And that's your ask is always based off what you think the person can provide. And you may ask less than what you think they can provide. Or you might be able to ask more of what you think they would provide. But at some point, when we're making that ask, we realize that there is a limit to what we can ask. We can aim as high as we want, but there's a limit to what those people can provide for us. But what Paul is saying here is that God is able to do not only what we ask, but more than what we can even imagine. We can't outthink the riches of God's mercy towards us. He is kinder than we are to ourselves. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He is the good father who levels us with his mercy. But the question we need to ask is when we think of Paul saying this is what does it actually look like to receive these things from God? What does it look like when God provides for us more than we ask or think? How and where does he give it to us? And this is the point we see in closing. This is Paul's final request that Christ and the church would display the glory of God. Verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. Now this kind of seems, it sounds beautiful, but it kind of seems like a bait and switch, right? Paul has been talking about Jesus' great love for you. He wants you to see how he's loved you. He wants you to experience the love. He wants you to go spelunking in the love. He wants to give you everything that you want. And then we get to this last section, this great summary, the final request of Paul. And he's not talking about Jesus' love for us anymore. And he's, we're actually not the recipients of the ask. The ask is for God's glory. And we can look at that and we can say, well, where, where do I line up in this? I want more of the love and getting what I want portion of the prayer and less of this last section of prayer. But he asks for God's glory in Jesus Christ and in the church. And what this reveals, something really important, is that behind, whenever you think of that impossible need you have in your life, what's behind your desire for love, for security, for peace, for belonging is truly a desire for glory. That's what Adam and Eve wanted in the garden. That's why the serpent was able to sneak in and say, God's holding back from you. Eat this and you will have glory greater than God. You will be like God. What they failed to realize is that God had already provided them his glory. He had shared it with them there in the garden. You see, the lie of glory is that we need our own. The lie of glory is that we need our own. Because we are really most satisfied, not with our glory, but with the glory of someone else. If we're honest, there's really no rest when we're living for our own glory because we worry if someone's going to come and take it. You set the record, you watch others come up after you. You have a good quarter, you're worried about the next quarter. You have a killer job, what's your identity and requirement? If it's about our own glory, we realize how fickle and how fearful it is. But in sharing someone else's glory, it brings us liberty. They bear the weight of it, right? You see, the truth is, is on the internet, there are countless high-quality professional photos of athletes and of celebrities. And yet, whenever we see one of them somewhere, we pull out our janky phones and we try to snap a poorly frame, fl- framed, blurry selfie of you and that individual, Why? Because we want to share in their glory. Because we realize that even for a moment, if we can identify ourselves with them, we have a familiarity with their fame. We realize it doesn't make us a celebrity. Taking my picture with a football player doesn't make you a football player. But we know everywhere else that there is a sharing of glory that satisfies us. But brothers and sisters, it is impossible for you or for anyone else to provide for you such a soul-satisfying and world-changing experience. But God has. God has promised to seek your benefit in his glory. When I do weddings, we always begin the wedding with with what's called a declaration of intent, where the bride and groom declare to each other and to those who are in in attendance their desire to fulfill the covenant of this marriage and to hold it in honor for what lies ahead. This text is God's declaration of intent for all of human history. God will be glorified through his redeemer, Jesus Christ, and his redeemed bride, the church. This is not a distant doctrine of the end times. This is the very encouragement that Paul is pastorally praying for this church, that Paul is praying for this church, that as you are rooted in love in the gospel, as we together explore and experience God's love in all of life, God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Finally, ultimately, no doubt about it, He will be glorified. It might seem meek. It might seem ordinary. It might seem belabored by our sins and the sins of others. But if this call, if God is rooting us in him, 
and redeeming us as we gaze at his love. This means for you individually and for us corporately that everything amounts to glory. There are no wasted movements in God's church. It all matters, and it matters eternally. It all can provide for us exactly what we're hoping for, not in our own ability to build a kingdom that we think meets our needs, but to glorify God who has already met our needs in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do you see that in your salvation, Jesus has undone the impossible? That you can finally and fully be loved because God has loved you. That it's only the love of Jesus that can consume every aspect of your life. That can provide a story that makes sense of Sundays and Saturdays and weekdays and sorrows and successes. And that it's only the glory of God promised perfectly in God that will ever satisfy our hearts. And here, God is saying, it's been won. Give your lives to that end. Think for that joy. Work for that beauty. Spend and be spent for that security. For God has held nothing back for his church in Jesus Christ. So let's pray that as Paul prayed, God will do exactly what Paul is praying for here in Missoula, in our homes, more importantly, in our hearts. So would you bow your heads with me in closing? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that according to the riches of your glory, you might strengthen us through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. That sovereign hope being rooted and established in love may have strength to comprehend with one another what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you, Heavenly Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to you be glory in this church and in our lives and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all God's people said, amen.